Good morning, everyone. Um, Today's reading is from Mark, um, and we're reading from chapter 12, verses 18 to 27. Um, And if you want to read along in the uh, Black Bibles, it's on page um, 1579. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us, that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Thanks for reading, Heather. Good morning, everyone. My name's Carl. I'm the senior pastor here at Trinity Church Unley. Thank you for joining with us this morning and welcome to 2023. If it's your first time with us this year, a big welcome. Thanks for joining with us. A few years ago, I went to visit a friend of mine in Launceston in Tasmania, and while I was there, I had a a few hours of spare time, so I decided to go for a run up, uh, I think it's called Cataract Gorge or something along along those lines. Now, I hadn't been doing very much running at the time, and I wanted to set myself a bit of a challenge. How far up this gorge could I get? Now, I know that there are some people here who are quite gifted runners. That's not me. Every step of a run hurts for me. Every step is a struggle. And so running up this gorge, I was very aware of the fact that for every step I took, it was actually really two steps because I was going to have to run home in the same direction. Anyway, I ran up through the basin that's in this gorge and past the swing bridge. And I wanted to get as many kilometers up the gorge as I possibly could. But the more I ran the more concerned I was about would I have the energy to get back. And so really before I was properly tired out, I turned around. And not long after turning around, I actually got a bit grumpy with myself as every familiar milestone I saw came back on the way back. I thought I could have run further, could have gone further. And that is, I think, because running back, it's easier because I know where the end point is. I know exactly what milestones I need to go past. And it felt so much easier, so much more certain. I wonder if you've ever experienced anything like that. Familiarity or knowing the destination that you're going to, knowing the way, it makes things easier, I think. And today, my prayer is that you leave here leave our time together this morning encouraged by Jesus' knowledge and his understanding about what happens when we die. 
he knows what's on the other side of death. You know, in our society, I think that death is the great equaliser, but it's also a great unknown for most people. I want you to see as we work our way through this passage that for King Jesus, death is not unknown. Indeed, today, Jesus has passed through death into resurrection life. Today, Jesus is very much alive in bodily form, seated at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus is what Paul calls the first fruits of the resurrection. But today, we're looking at Mark chapter 12, and that's before any of these things had happened. Jesus has just come into Jerusalem as a, as a king, riding in on his colt, and the people had lined the streets with cloaks, recognizing him as a king. And in Mark chapter 12, we see King Jesus, and we see him teaching with wisdom, and he's teaching about judgment and about salvation. And he's stirring up things. And like our passage from last week, this week's passage, it helps us to see King Jesus' extraordinary wisdom and his remarkable mastery of the situation. And I want you to go home today knowing that Jesus is untrickable, that he's untrappable, that he's the master, especially when it comes to things like theology and scripture. That's where we're going today. That's what I want you to see from this passage. But as we start, we're we're in the same place that this passage is, and that's with Jesus finding himself in yet another trap. If you've been working through this section of Mark's gospel, you'll see that this is now the third trap that has been set for Jesus. Last week, we saw the trap that the Pharisees and the Herodians set for Jesus, and, and this week, it's a trap that's set by the Sadducees. It's not a physical trap or a, a magic trap, trap like we had in the kids' talk, but a, a riddle, a trap of the mind. And it's designed to make Jesus look silly. Now, to fully grasp what is happening in this passage, we need to know a little about that group of people called the Sadducees. In my house, we have a favourite saying that goes along with this passage. It's printed out in your leaflets. We say this, the Sadducees are sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection. And as silly as that saying is, it's actually key to understanding what's going on in this passage. So important, in fact, that, that Mark tells us that right there in verse 18. Did you see that? The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. But let me give you just a little bit more background that might, might help you wrap your heads around the Sadducees. They're a, a group of religious believers, a bit like the Pharisees that we saw last week, but, but they're different to the Pharisees, different because, well, primarily the Sadducees, they only thought of the first five books in the Bible as being authoritative. They saw only the first five books of the Bible as being canonical. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they, they saw the whole Old Testament as being canonical. Now, in, in a way, you could think of the Sadducees, their Bible was very thin, only five books long. And that probably helps us go a long way to understanding why the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Old Testament as a whole, it's not silent on the topic of, um, not silent on the topic of resurrection. We can see that in passages like Isaiah 26 or Daniel chapter 12. In fact, I'd like you to come to Daniel chapter 12 with me. If you've got any Bibles there, you might like to flick to Daniel 12. Um, just, I just want you to see the clarity that the Old Testament has around the resurrection. It's also going to be on the screen if you can't find Daniel in your Bible. 
Let me just read to you the first two verses of Daniel chapter 12. It says this, At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects our people, will arise. There will be a time of distress, such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Daniel 12 makes a pretty compelling case for the resurrection of the dead, but but Daniel's not one of the first five books of the Bible, and and neither is Isaiah for that matter, and the Sadducees, they they don't recognise these texts as being authoritative. And therefore they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And there have been arguments, I think, between the Pharisees and the Sadducees over this topic. And the Sadducees have a trick, a scenario that helps them in their cause, and it's to do with marriage. If you're following along in your leaflet, we're up to point two, and we're looking at the trap being set here. Now, I expect that the the Pharisees and the Sadducees had had many debates about the resurrection, and I reckon this question that they used to test Jesus had had probably been well tested as a question. I want you to see it's designed to trap or to stump. My guess is it's worked pretty well for them in the past. It's there in verse 19. Let me read it to you. This is what it says. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too at the resurrection. Whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? You get what's happening here? You know, for us as Australians living in in 2023, the idea of marrying your brother's wife is pretty weird, isn't it? Even say it's bordering on kind of being offensive. If this were in place today, well, I'm pretty glad that my brother's wives all have children, but I reckon before that they would have been pretty careful about their husbands. There would have been no motorbike riding and no climbing up ladders. Come to think of it, I would have taken extra special care of my brothers as well. If we went out fishing, they would have definitely been wearing their life jackets. Because this is a weird concept, isn't it? It's all out of place in our world today. And it's a good reminder for us that some things in the ancient world are are different to how they are today. There are different assumptions about the way in which people thought and did things. And I think in this case, the assumption is that a, a person's name, or really a man's name, a man's survival is through the continuation of the family line. Perhaps this is also a way in which women in the ancient world were cared for in the absence of other social security networks. But even with that kind of background, with those assumptions in place, it's still a strange thing to have happen. A couple of times where it does happen in Genesis, it seems to be followed a little bit reluctantly as well. Now we add to this strange situation of brothers marrying uh, wives, sisters, uh, that this situation happens seven times. And as you're reading through this, surely you thought, well, brother three or four, they would have started to get pretty worried about their situation, let alone brothers six and seven. And of course, this is just a fictitious situation, isn't it? 
This is just a riddle designed to stump Jesus. It's a, a riddle designed to make the whole idea of the resurrection look silly. And while it's a silly question, there is to some degree a serious aspect to this today. What about those in our world today who have been married more than once? Or those who have never been married at all? What will their life look like in the resurrection age? It's a silly question the way that the Sadducees ask it, but it's also a fairly deep question. And as I said before, I don't think it's the first time the Sadducees have used this question. I reckon it's a clangor that they brought out often, and I reckon in the past it probably hasn't failed them very many times. And for Jesus, this is clearly another trap that he finds himself in. Last week it was political and about paying taxes. This time it's theological. I want you to see in point three in your leaflet that Jesus is not caught by this trap. In fact, he disarms it with ease. Let me read on from verse 24 in our passage. Jesus replied, Are you not in error? because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Instead of being trapped here, Jesus shows the Sadducees and and us as readers today that he is a master when it comes to theology. He's confident, isn't he? He goes out on the attack. Are you not in error? Like what R.C. Sproul says here, he says, they are in error because they don't understand the scriptures. Like 100% of all theological errors, the basis for the error is in not understanding scripture and in not recognizing the power of God. Now, Jesus is going to go on to detail their scriptural error, and we will look at that in a few minutes' time. But first, he shows them that the whole premise of what happens in the age to come, well, they have that wrong. And his answer shows that, well, he has real knowledge of what is to come. He's confident of it and he's assured of it. He speaks with authority and he can do that because he's God. He has insight from beyond this world. And what does he say? Well, he tells the Sadducees that the age to come, it's not simply an extension of this life. It's different. Now, I I wish Jesus shed a bit more light here on what the age to come is actually like. But all he really says, isn't it, is that in the age to come, we will be like the angels. I wonder what you think that means. I think what he means by this is that we won't experience death. In fact, this is made a little bit more clearer in the interaction, uh, this, this same story recorded in Luke's Gospel. We're like the angels because we won't die. And if there's no death, then there's no need for parents to give birth to children. We are instead children of God. And if there's no need for babies to be born, no need for children, then there's no need for marriage. In a way, that's the logic, I think, of Jesus' answer. I wonder how that makes you feel. You may think there's more to marriage than simply producing children. Perhaps this morning you're sitting here as a married person or as a a person who's hoping one day to get married. How does this passage leave you feeling? I've been married for 20 years. I got married when I was 21. Soon I will have been married for longer than I haven't been married. And to be honest, it's strange thinking about an age to come where I won't be married. 
And yet I remember the vows that I took when I got married, till death do us part. I wonder what you think all of this means. I'm borrowing here from David Garland. He says, well, Jesus' cursory remarks offer few clues about resurrection life, except that it will be totally dissimilar from this worldly one. I reckon that's a helpful thing for us to remember today because I suspect that many of us think about the age to come, the life to come, as, as just an extension of this life. Maybe better, hopefully better. When you think about what life will be like in the resurrection age, I, I wonder what images come to your mind. Are you living in the same house in the resurrection age? It's just that you never need to mow the lawn? Is that, that kind of how it works? Or, or perhaps you drive the same car, but... There are no dents in that same car. The same job, but you do whatever you want to do rather than what your boss tells you to do. We only get a very, very small glimpse into the future in this passage, don't we? For me, it highlights what theologians call the discontinuities, the differences. And the one that's on view here is there's no death and therefore no need of babies and no need of marriage. And I guess for some of us, that's a bit scary because marriage is really important to us. And the idea of not being married, well, it might even be undesirable. I don't want you to go home thinking that, though, this morning. I want to encourage you by thinking this way, that in the age to come, all things will be put right. All relationships will work perfectly in the age to come. All relationships, all of the relationships we have in the age to come will be better than the very best of marriages in this age. In Mark 12, we only get a very small glimpse into what the resurrection life will be like. On the other hand, we get a very big glimpse into what King Jesus is like. And that's what I want to look at with you for the rest of our time together this morning. We're up to the last point in our handouts. We're going to switch the order in our handouts. And I want you to see first Jesus' knowledge about what happens in the age to come. And we'll also see Jesus' command and wisdom when it comes to understanding theology. Well, last week, Jesus spoke about taxes and tax law. And I said the main thrust in the passage there was actually about his wisdom and his supremacy. Uh, last week, uh, his wisdom was in relation to politics and taxation law. Uh, but it was actually about the way in which people's hearts work. This week, we see Jesus' mastery over theology and the way in which Scripture works. And we're going to see that uh, in verses 26 to 27. So if you've got your Bibles open, have a look at those with me. Let me read these to you. This is what Jesus says. Now, about the dead rising... Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. So this shows you Jesus' command over the scriptures. I've already told you that the Sadducees, they only recognised the, the first five books of the Bible as having authority. So Jesus takes the Sadducees to book two, to Exodus, and he takes them to chapter three, when God addresses Moses at the burning bush. And God does so by saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
Now, this is Exodus, remember. This is a book that the Sadducees agree is authoritative. And the next step in Jesus' logic is to remind the Sadducees that God is the God of the living, not the dead. This was a well-accepted premise for the Sadducees. And then let me fill in the blanks. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob must be living if God is a God of the living. And given that their earthly bodies have well and truly been buried by the time of this interaction, then there must be some sort of resurrection. Now, if you follow that logic, it kind of makes sense, but it's also pretty obscure, right? You wouldn't expect that to be the implication you get from reading Exodus chapter 3. And what I want you to see then is here is Jesus, master of theology and master of the scriptures, working as the wise king. Now, I should say that Jesus is himself, of course, a believer in the resurrection three times in Mark's gospel, In chapter 8, verse 31, and 9, 31, and 10, almost 31, Jesus teaches his disciples that his whole purpose of coming into the world was to die and three days later to rise from the dead. There's no doubt for us, as those who read the New Testament, that Jesus knows of and today has experienced resurrection life. But here in Mark chapter 12, I want you to see his wisdom and his knowledge of the scriptures using a passage from the first five books of the bible he reasons with the sadducees and provides a robust defense for the resurrection that even they can't argue with mark is showing us here what king jesus is like god's wise king he knows the scriptures he's a a theological master And so maybe at the start of the year, you've got some big questions that are kind of following you around as you get into the year. Questions about life and death or or questions about your role in the world. Big questions. Questions that I think are really great for us to be asking at the start of the year. Let me point you to the man who is the theological master. A man who has the perfect grasp over Scripture. Jesus, God's wise king. He understands and he knows what's best for his people. And I hope that gives you a really good reason in 2023 to keep following Jesus, or if you're not yet following him, to take another look at him. Can I encourage you to consider Jesus and to follow him because he is God's wise king? I think that's what Mark wants us to do as we look at this passage, to see Jesus' wisdom and to follow him. Before I finish up, I just want to say a few more words about resurrection life. We've covered a bit of this already this morning, but what I want you to go away with this morning is knowing, well, knowing that Jesus knows what the resurrection life is like. Jesus knows what life in the age to come is like. He knows what it is to have a resurrected body. And I hope this morning that gives you confidence to keep on following him. This year as a church, we're going to be working our way through Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church, or the first letter that we have anyway. And one, 1 Corinthians is a wonderful book. Chapter 15 is one of the greatest chapters of the Bible, and it's a chapter that speaks a lot about resurrection life. 
I want to read to you a few verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. I think they're up on the screen. This is what Paul says, the Apostle Paul who wrote 1 Corinthians. He says this, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. The Apostle Paul writes these words after Jesus has gone to the cross, after the events of Mark chapter 12 had happened. He writes after Jesus has died and been raised and has ascended to heaven. When Paul writes these words, the resurrection of Jesus, well, it was, it was beyond a doubt. It had definitely happened. Earlier in the chapter, he, he tells us that the risen Jesus appeared to the disciples, and then if that's not enough proof, to 500 other people... In Paul's mind, at least, there is no question Jesus has been raised from the dead. It really happened. And Paul goes on to make this point, that when it comes to the resurrection, Jesus is the first fruits. He's the, the trailblazer, the one who, who leads the way. And so just as Jesus has been raised from the dead, so those who belong to him will also be raised. And that brings me back to, to running up Cataract Gorge in Launceston. Things are easier when we know what lies ahead. It's easier running towards home than it is running away because you know the way ahead. This passage that we've read today, I hope it gives you lots of comfort as you live your life following in the footsteps of Jesus. That he's been before us. He's, he's paved the way. He's, he's left milestones for us to follow. He knows what happens when we die. He's told us with great assurance that resurrection life waits for those who follow him. I'm going to pray for us. Father God, we thank you for this passage in Mark's Gospel that helps us to see Jesus as an untrappable, wise king. Father, please help us to follow this wise king. And thank you also for the great assurance in this passage that the wise king knows what happens when we die. We thank you uh, for his resurrection and for the hope that it gives us of our own. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.